under the age of 50? Who can tell me what the sixth commandment is? You can peek. It's in Exodus chapter 20. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not kill. You know, our Lord applies that uh, to the heart in the New Testament. And he expands that so we can understand the heart issue there. Uh, Even if you're angry with your neighbor, you've committed what? Murder in your heart. And if you break the commandments of God, what happens? You die. So the breaking of the law of God, the, the penalty of the wages of sin is death. So the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. You break the commandments of God outside of grace. What happens? You die. Now here's what's interesting. So we come to verse 12 and 13 this morning, especially verse 13, and Paul's commanding us to kill. And he says, if you kill, you'll live. Now, isn't that interesting? Over in uh, the Ten Commandments, if you kill, you die. And Paul's saying, kill. And when you do kill, you'll live. Let's see how those two come together in today's passage. You know, Romans 8 opened up by unfolding to us the great doctrine of the person and the work of the Holy Spirit uh, in the life of the believer. And it's been helping us see who we are in Christ. Yes, we've been saved by grace. Yes, we're trusting in Christ. Our sins are forgiven. We have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are much blessed as God's people. But then we see there's this work of sanctification that's taking place by the personal work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We saw that he, he indwells us, right? He lives within us. And this we're learning who we are as Christians and the resources we have in Christ. We saw in verse 1 there's no condemnation to us because we're in Christ. What liberating truth that was. What a great victory there is in that first verse. And we saw that all who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, His shed blood, His work on the cross have been freed from the dominion of sin, so we're no longer slaves to sin anymore. We've been freed from the condemnation of the law. We've been freed from death. And we're no longer in the flesh, but we see that we are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us, indwelling us. So what does it mean? If you're saved, you have the Spirit in you. Well, last week we saw that if you have the Spirit in you, on that last day, as we just sang, when you breathe your last breath, and this is your last day, you're going to immediately be in the presence of whom? The Lord Jesus Christ, if the Spirit of God is truly in you. So today we come to verse 12, and we notice there's a shift. I kind of gave you a little tip. There's a shift at the beginning of this. Up to verse through 11, we've seen doctrine. He's been teaching us doctrine about the Holy Spirit, Doctrine about our relationship to Christ. Doctrine about our sanctification and becoming conformed into His image. Now we're, we're moving in from doctrine. Now, so then, and now there's a change taking place. Do any of your translations say, therefore? I didn't look it up. Mary's, okay. A few of you did. Because another under, understanding of the so then would be therefore. And when you see a therefore, what do you ask? What's the therefore? Therefore, okay, so that's our question. What's the therefore, therefore? Well, it's it's dividing. And Paul uses the word therefore a lot. And typically when Paul uses the word therefore, he's given us doctrine. He's taught us about our relationship to Christ. He's taught us about the gospel. He's taught us about the Holy Spirit, about our sanctification. And then all of a sudden he comes to it with a therefore, And now there's going to be a change. And normally with the Apostle Paul, when the therefore shows up, he's saying, I want you to do something. There's some application that relates to that doctrine. And that's very Pauline in the way that he writes Scripture. You know, he first lays the foundation of truth. He lays the foundation of doctrine. And then upon that foundation, what does he do? Therefore, now this is how you're to live. So you have the indicatives, you have the indicatives, which is the doctrine, and then you have the therefore, and then all of a sudden comes the imperatives, which is the what? The commands of Scripture. Now, this is important. It might sound a little foundational, but it's important because if you delete the application, if you delete what comes after the therefores, you end up with a cold, heady orthodoxy and not a vibrant, living Christianity. 
the therefores are important. How we live is, 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 is everything as believers in Christ. In fact, if you just are you're caught up with the, with the theology and you're not going to the, to, to the imperatives that, that follow with the therefore, you end up with a, a puffed up head. You know, you, your doctrine's like this. You got, we talked in Sunday school about fat sheep, you know, and uh, but God doesn't want a bunch of fat sheep as far as their heads are concerned, but he wants us to be able to live out his truth for the glory of God. Knowledge without application can lead to antinomianism. This is important. So if you just have doctrine, but there's no practical outworking of that doctrine in your Christian life, that can lead, not always, but it can lead to lawlessness, licentiousness, uh, antinomianism. Uh, it gives us a license to sin. So therefore, introduces verses 12 and 13, two short verses, and how we're to live the sanctified life in light of being justified by grace through faith alone. And in light of the fact that we have the transforming power of the Holy Spirit inside of each one of us, indwelling us. So in light of who you are as a Christian, in light of being justified by faith, in light of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, now, no longer live under the dominion of the flesh and sin, how do you become Christ-like? Now, it's amazing that Paul could answer that question in two verses. How do you become Christ-like? You've got the Holy Spirit indwelling you. You've been saved by the grace of God. Christ has taken your wrath. He's, you, you put your trust in him. You're forgiven. You have his righteousness. You have the power and the indwelling spirit. You're freed from slavery to sin. Now, how do you live the Christian life? Well, here's the question. How do we live the Christian life? Is it something that we must do, or is it something that God does for us? That's the question. Do we passively surrender to God after we know the doctrine and let Him do all the changing in our life and not take any active steps ourselves to stop sinning? You know, one school of theology that uh, back in, in the 1800s was the Higher Life Movement that came out of England. Uh, there was a bunch of conferences they held in Keswick, known as the Keswick Conferences. Uh, also, broader scope was the Wesleyan Holiness move, Movement. And it taught something like this. You, you must be a holy person if you're a Christian. You must be like Christ. Now, how do you become a holy person? Well, you, you've heard this phrase, let go and what? Let God. Don't do anything. Be passive. Surrender, they would say. So you surrender to God, and you let God do all the changing, and he does it. So over a snap of a finger, all of a sudden, God's making you more and more like Jesus Christ with you doing absolutely nothing but surrendering to him. You know, a, kind of a, a modern approach to preaching has taken on this philosophy today, and I want to bring it to your attention, because there is a philosophy, especially in Reformed circles today, and this is more of an extreme form of that form of preaching called redemptive historical preaching. Now, that in itself is not wrong, but an abuse of that can become wrong in as far as its outworking in our Christian life. We, uh, it goes like this. What's important is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We'd all say what? Amen. I mean, we can't hear the gospel enough. We want to hear the gospel. We love the gospel. We love all that Christ has done. But the argument goes that that's what we need to have a heart's desire to live a holy life. And absent a strong pressing of the imperatives, People will just begin to live a holy life. They'll be under, no longer under the law. They'll be more under grace. And they, they delight in Christ even more. And they become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so an extreme form of this, this, this approach to preaching is a preaching that's weak on imperatives. You know, if you bring up an imperative, it might be called legalistic. Or if you bring up an imperative, it might be called moralistic. Leave it up to the Holy Spirit. Leave it up to the gospel working in your heart alone to sanctify you. 
It's the gospel that justified you. Now leave it up to the gospel alone to sanctify you. And of course, we can never hear enough of the redemptive work of Christ, his suffering on our behalf, his keeping of the law, his bearing the wrath of, from the Father on our behalf. And we must have gratitude for all that he's done. And, uh, but yet we can see where if you, if, if you take away the therefores and what comes after the therefores, you end up with, I think, an unbalanced theology. So which is it when it comes to sanctification? Is it all of God? Is it a work that he does by himself? Or is it a cooperative work of man? That is a cooperative work where man is cooperating with what God is doing to bring us to become more like Jesus Christ. Or let me just reframe it in a theological term. Is sanctification synergistic or is your sanctification monergistic? You say, well, I have no idea. I don't even know what those words mean. What do you mean, synergistic, monergistic? Well, let's break them down. Uh, mono is what? One. Uh, comes from ergon, or ergo, which is work in Greek. It's the working of one. So is sanctification the working of one, that is God himself, and man's not involved at all? Is it monergistic, like our, like our justification is? Or is it synergistic? Synergistic is two working together, and, and so you have man and God, and cooper, man cooperating with God towards his own sanctification. I'll let you answer that question in your own heart. I wrestled with that this last week. Is it exclusively the work of God alone? Or is it a combination of the work of God alone with the redeemed people of God, Him doing the, the work of sanctification and us doing the work He's called us to do? Uh, we know this from Romans. We've been through this. In Romans, the work of justification by faith alone is totally monergistic. It's all of God, right? Our salvation is of God and God alone. It was God who chose us before the foundation of the world. It was God who sent his Son into this world to save people and, and to purchase them. And it was God who, who brings the new birth. It's the Spirit of God who brings the new heart. And, uh, wait, wait, see, I'll stop there, but I was involved in my salvation a little bit because I believed. Or I was involved in my salvation. It was cooperative because I repented. I remember when I did that. Yes, but Paul reminds us in Ephesians 2, 8, 9 that even your faith is a gift of God. And then we're also reminded in Acts chapter 11, verse 18, that God granted you repentance, it says there. So even if you repented, it's God giving you the very gift of repentance. And it's God who forgives, and it's God who imputes his, his own uh, righteousness to his people. It's God who forgives. And so it's all of God. It's monergistic. It's all of God alone. Then the next question, what about sanctification then? That's the process where we're becoming more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. We're growing in grace. Is it monergistic too, or is it synergistic? Is it all of God, or is it God plus you cooperating with God? Now, that's not as easy to answer as it is for justification. We know that it's of God. We know that it's God indwelling us. It's the Spirit of God who, who strengthens and powers and transforms. And so we see that sanctification is a gift of God. It's a work of God. He brings the victory of, uh, on the cross. We know that he powerfully and inwardly is transforming us. But is it synergistic? Is there a sense in which we must be involved in the process of our sanctification? Is it God plus us? And it's a good question. It's not one that's easy to answer. I, I, I wrestled with that this last week, and I thought I had it nailed down where I was on it until I, I read Kevin DeYoung on this. And I realized, I, th I think Kevin DeYoung might have his finger on really what might be the best understanding. Is it synergistic or is it monergistic? And Kevin would say, is it monergistic? Is it all of God? Yes. Is it synergistic? Yes. 
there's a sense in which we do cooperate. We must cooperate actively. We're gonna, I'm going to show you some passages. If, you, if you're not sure of that one, let me just show you some passages in a minute. We, we, we need to do everything we can do with our redeemed will and the power of the Holy Spirit to do away with sin in our life. We're active in that process. We're not passive. Uh, we must cooperate actively. You see a glimpse of this from Calvin's commentary on 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, let me read the passage to you, then I'll read what Calvin says. He says, For this very reason, this is Scripture, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness. In other words, he comments on the words, take every effort to become godly. Calvin writes, as it is an arduous work and of immense labor to put off the corruption that is within us. Peter bids us to strive and to make every effort for this purpose. He intimates that no place is to be given in this case to sloth and that we ought to, be, to obey God calling us not slowly or carelessly but that there needs to be all readiness as though he said put forth every effort and make every exertion manifest to be, to be a godly person. So Kevin uh, DeYoung rightly, I believe rightly concludes therefore when it comes to sanctification in terms of monergism and synergism he says, I believe those, those terms muddy up the, the, what, what sanctification is because it doesn't neatly define within those, those parameters or boundaries. Instead, I believe he, he writes this. He concludes, those who say sanctification is monergistic, they want to protect the gracious, supernatural character of sanctification. And those who say sanctification is synergistic want to emphasize that we must actively cooperate with the grace of God in sanctification. And then he says this, these emphases are both correct. And I think that's where it leaves us in many ways. Because as you're going to see today, it's true that your sanctification is a powerful work of God. He's sanctifying you. And everyone he saved, he will sanctify. And we saw, we're going to see later in Romans 8, and he will glorify But we're, we're involved. There's a therefore here that we have to deal with. It didn't stop at verse 11. There's a verse 12 and 13. Yes, the Holy Spirit is doing a transforming work within our hearts. Yes, the Holy Spirit is removing sin from our life and growing us in Christ's likeness. And yet, uh, there's a, God has given us means where we are to aggressively take all the means that He's given us to simply stop sinning. Philippians 2.12, I think, is our commentary for all of this, that we see it in just one, one passage. Another therefore. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, uh, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, Paul says this, work out your salvation. That, that's aggressive. That's active. Work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. Well, I can't do that. I can't do anything without God. That's true. For it is God who works in you. There's the Spirit of God. And He's giving you both the will, the desire, and the power to work for His good pleasure. And I believe that's, that's the balance that we have here. Paul brings his own balance. Yeah, it's all a work of God. Yes, He's the one who's doing the sanctifying. On the other hand, we are actively cooperating with Him. And all who are truly saved, who have the Spirit of God, will cooperate in such a way, in a radical way, to bring about our ultimate sanctification. So how do we grow in holiness? What are the God-given means for our sanctification? Well, in verse 12 and 13, let me just break it down into two points. Verse 12, he gives us the argument in verse, 12, verse 13, he gives us the application. Here's the argument. Brothers, who's he writing to? Fellow believers at Rome, Christians, believers here at Redeeming Grace Church. 
We are debtors, but not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. So he begins by arguing that what's true of all of us, that we all are Christians, or brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, we know that you are believers, and you know you're a believer. We have already seen the Holy Spirit is alive in you, and he's sanctifying you. You're, you're dead to your, to your, your, your trespasses and sin. And this isn't because of anything you did. It's because of your of righteousness of Christ being put to your account. In fact, we saw if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're, you're not saved. But you're spiritually alive. You're dead to the flesh. You're dead to sin now. It no longer has sway over your life anymore. It's all a work of God. You're dead to the condemnation of the law. Therefore, we are no more debtors to that flesh. A wonderful transformation has taken place in our lives. And we're redeemed debtors. To whom do we owe a debt? He says, well, let me tell you who it's not to. You don't owe a debt to the flesh. We're believers. We don't... We're dead to sin. Jesus Christ died for those sins. He bore the wrath of the Father for our sins. Are we going to now go into the very flesh, the flesh from which these sins come? Are we going to go back to that flesh and and pay it, owe a debt to it, sin some more? Is is that what we're going to do? He says, no, God forbid. The flesh does nothing for you except bring sin. The flesh does nothing for you except bring death. You've been delivered from the control of, of, of the flesh. You don't owe the flesh anything. And if you're going to go back and serve that flesh and keep on sinning, that's ridiculous. It's absolutely contrary to who you are in Christ. And it's contrary to everything that Christ has done for you. As Prince's Bride would say, it's inconceivable that anybody would even think about doing such a thing as going back and serving the flesh. Why? Well, how can we go back and live for it? We're not debtors to the flesh. The Holy Spirit's come and emancipated us and set us free. You know, I read an illustration that was helpful for me, and I'll share it with you. You know, let's go back to the Civil War. Let's go back to slavery in the United States. And let's say you were a slave in the South. Civil War is raging. The war is finished. The Emancipation Proclamation is signed. And now all of a sudden, all your life you've been a slave. You're free. You're free to go. So here you are. I mean, you're out of the chains. You're walking down the street. You don't know what you're going to do next. And here's the question. Do you owe a debt? Who do you owe the debt to? Would you go back and pay the debt to those who held you in bondage all of your life and go back and serve them in bondage? No, 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 you're free. And being free, you don't serve the master anymore. And that's what he's saying here in a spiritual way. You don't go back and serve uh, the flesh that brought about with your own sin, that brought about condemnation. Christ has freed you. It's inconsistent. Now, we know we still sin, right? We haven't been totally free. Every one of us in this room, I can say with absolute certainty, probably in the last 24 hours have sinned. And definitely in the last seven days, right, since we last gathered. But if you're a Christian, you're not a habitual sinner. If you're a Christian, you, you, you are, yeah, you, you have the remnant of sin in you. And yes, we sin. Paul sinned. We saw back in Romans 7. He's battling with sin in his own heart. But you don't go back and serve the flesh with more sin now that God has saved you. So what do you do to remove that remnant of sin that's still in all of us so that we become more like Christ and live a holy life? And this is where the application comes in. By the way, first Paul adds here at the very beginning of 13. If you do live according to the flesh, by the way, if you do want to go back and serve sin, now that you're a professing Christian, be warned. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. 
So if you profess faith in Christ, and you're going to go back and serve the master of sin, the one that God has freed you from, and that's what's going to be your, your goal is to serve and pay a debt to that master, you will die. And that's not physical death. That means you were never saved to begin with. It's evidence you're not a Christian. Remember, he's writing to believers here. And the death here is more than physical death. It's, it's an eternal separation from God. If you go back and keep serving the master, sin. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. This means you never, never had the salvation to begin with. It's evidence you were never saved. The Spirit of God is not in you. Now, here's the heart of what I want to look at this morning. The, the, but, if the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, here's the command. Here's what we're directed to do. It's not quite worded as an imperative, but it, it carries the weight of an imperative. But if by the Spirit you put to death, you mortify the deeds of the flesh, the deeds of the body. In other words, if by the grace of God you then kill sin, you'll live. If you kill sin in your life, you'll live. If you feed sin to the the flesh, you'll die. You'll have everlasting life. You'll be found Nothing wanting on that last day. This is not let go and let God. This is called killing sin. This is where we get involved cooperatively in the process of our own sanctification. There is something we must do. We must not be afraid of that. You know, back in 6.6, we saw in Romans that uh, Paul was telling us that the victory that that Christ is won and and the Spirit of God is won, that we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. The work has been done. So we have a remnant of sin, and he's calling us to kill it, mortify it. John Owen, uh, classical writing on this, writes, Be killing sin, or it's going to be killing you. And I think that sums it up pretty well. But if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. And by the way, this is in present tense here. This is ongoing uh, if by the Spirit uh, you are continually mortifying and putting uh, to death the deeds of the flesh, the sin that's in your flesh or your body, it's ongoing. Christians want to realize the Holy Spirit that He He sins. I mean, if you if you don't if you're not there, you have to. Say, I'm like, I still sin. It's not like I believed in Christ and everything's okay now. I, I have a battle on my hands. But you owe no debt to sin and no debt to the flesh. But if you put death, the deeds of the body, and that's what I want to look at. What does it mean to put sin to death in your life, and how do you do that? How do you mortify the deeds of the flesh? How do you mortify sin in your life? Is it let go and let God and just wait and he'll come and he'll, he'll just change everything in my heart and my attitudes? No. This is aggressive. Pardon the use of the phrase, this is masculine. This, this is masculine Christianity where you actually put to death the deeds of the flesh in your life. You kill sin. Christian thinks, I, I hate sin within, I will kill it. Not let it control my body. I'll, I'll mortify it. Take out the machete. Wop, lop off its head. There's action here. The Christian life, when it comes to sanctification, is not passive. It's active. Now, it's not active in the flesh. It's not active in the sense we're working and earning. But it is active in the sense that, by the grace of God and the inward power of the Holy Spirit, we are brought to action, not passivity. 
It's not meditating on Christ or meditating on the gospel. It's going to somehow sanctify us. Oh, the gospel's good. We can never hear the gospel enough. It brings delight to our heart. It, it, it invigorates us and it, it energizes us and, and it causes us to, to understand the, the proper purpose of the gospel. But it, can't, it won't sanctify us just by thinking about the gospel. You must be engaged. Now, if you're not with me, you're still maybe kind of arguing in your mind on, on this, have a little debate going on. Let me just read some passages to you. And I'm, I don't do this very often, but there are so many passages, and these are only half of them. Because I, I thought, well, we only have so much time, I can't just read all the passages. But these are ones that you're familiar with. This shows us that we're to be active, we're to be killing, we're to be in the process of cooperating with God in our sanctification. We saw in Romans 12, 12 that, uh, uh, I appeal you therefore, brothers, by the mercies, 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, brothers, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a what? Living sacrifice. That is, that's active. 1 Corinthians six eighteen, flee sexual immorality. There's a command. There's an imperative. Flee it. Get as far as you can from it. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run, that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable wreath. So I do not run, Paul says aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. Who's he boxing against? He's got the gloves on. This is active. He's not passive here. This is the Apostle Paul who's wrestling with sin in Romans chapter 7. He says, I discipline my body. I beat my own body so that I might myself not be disqualified. So there's active. He's actively pursuing holiness. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's an imperative, isn't it? Don't do it. What partnership has righteousness with unrighteousness? Or what fellowship has the light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 7.1 since we have these promises, beloved, let's cleanse ourselves. Ephesians 4.25, put away falsehood. Let every one of us speak truth. Those are commands. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Who's working out your salvation, your, your, your sanctification? You are, obviously by the grace of God. Work out your, but I can't. We're going to see in a minute, well, that's because, but God is in you. He's giving you the desire. He's giving you the power to do it. Philippians 3.14, I press on towards the goal of the prize uh, of the upward call of, of God in Christ Jesus. I'm pressing on. I'm engaged. 1 Thessalonians 4.3, for this is the will of God. Now, okay, here it is. What's the will of God regarding your salvation, your sanctification? That you abstain from sexual immorality. Stop sinning. Kill sin. Stop immorality. 1 Timothy 6.11 But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness. Pursue godliness. Pursue faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness. And then he says, fight the good fight. And that's within the context of sanctification. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called and about which you were made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And I could go on and on. you got James 4, 7 and 8. Resist the devil. 1 Peter 2, 11, Abstain from fleshly lusts. Revelation 22, the last chapter of the book of the Bible. Blessed are they that do the commandments and have, uh, they have the right to the tree of life. Do you see how we are to be engaged, that we're not to be passive, that we're cooperating in, on some level 
with the work of sanctification that God's doing in our life towards our ultimate sanctification. You say, well, Don, I hear this, but it sounds to me like this is a, a, a work salvation you're talking about here. This sounds like you're trying to bring in the, uh, the, the covenant of works back into the new covenant. It's Paul that says, if I don't mortify the deeds of the flesh, you're going to die. That's, that's the words of the Apostle Paul. It's not our works. It's, it's God's work in us. There's nothing we can do to take credit for this. It isn't like we get on this 12-step program to sanctification and we better ourselves and we're going to get into it and roll our sleeves up and do it and make ourselves more acceptable to God. No, that's not what he's saying. And that would even contradict all that Paul says about salvation and sanctification. Salvation is not a work. Ephesians 2, 8, and 10. Sanctification is not a work. It's all of God. It's all of grace. Remember who he's talking about, but he's talking to believers. He's talking to brothers in the Lord. This isn't legalism. This isn't moralism. This is God's pathway to holiness through the sanctification of his Spirit. And by grace, he's, his Spirit has given us the drive and the power to kill sin. So let me just close this morning by giving you a few what I think are some practical applications on how you kill sin in your life. This, this is a few. This, I, there's, all of Scripture would answer this question more fully. But how do you kill sin? Because if you don't, you don't have life. How do you mortify the deeds of the flesh? Well, the first thing you do is you turn to the Bible. That's where you go to begin with. The Scriptures are going to point the way. Not books or, that you read or other, you know, but it's, it's the Bible. It's going to guide us into the way of crucifying the flesh and putting to death the deeds of the flesh. There's also some secondary literature out there I could just direct you to, and I think it would be very profitable for you to take a look at. Uh, look at uh, the writings of John Owen, a Puritan, in the, er- in the area of mortifying sin in our lives. Uh, go to a book like J.C. Ryle, who understands a very vibrant sanctification in his book called Holiness. Both of these would be great helps for you to look at and, on killing sin in your life. But notice where Paul begins. He says it's by the Spirit. You can't do this by yourself. This isn't something you drum up and do. But this is something the Holy Spirit is doing in you, giving you the desire to kill the flesh and sin and giving you the power to be able to do it. Owen writes, he says, in other words, the Spirit works in us and with us, not against us or without us. I think that gives us the balance there. It's really the work of God, but it's through the Spirit. Here's, here's one place to begin. Begin by killing sin. How do you kill sin? Kill sin. And if I told you, you know, you have to kill a snake, what would you do? Take the shovel and you'd kill the snake. It's, uh, <laughs> you wouldn't go to the 12 steps on how to kill the snake. you just go out and kill the snake. And it's that simple, really, in the Christian life. In Romans 8.13, when Paul tells us to mortify the sin that's in, our, that's in our flesh, in our body, I believe he wants to simply go do it. Kill sin. S- simply stop sinning. You know you're sinning. Stop sinning. And uh, abstain from the fleshly lust. Let him who steal, steal no more. Stop it. Let him who lie, lie no more. Stop it. Flee fornication. So you, just, you, you, you simply stop sinning. And I say simply as if it was easy, right? And it's not because it's, it, it's, it's a battle, isn't it? It's a war. It's, it's not something, oh, I just, I'm going to stop sinning. But that's where it begins. A hard attitude is saying, by the grace of God, I'm going to stop this sin in my life. I'm going to trust Him. I'm going to seek all the resources and all the grace from Him to be able to do that. Number two, have no fellowship with works of darkness. You can't be killing sin in your life 
if you're dabbling with people who are active sinners around you. It doesn't work that way. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? For what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? And so there you can see that uh, if you're struggling in the battle for sin and you want to kill sin in your life, perhaps there's a besetting sin that you've been wrestling with. If you're hanging out with those people who are doing the same thing, you're not helping yourself in the battle for holiness. Uh, Don't hang out with those who do. Cut off relationships with those who might lead you astray. I remember when I was first saved, I uh, was going to law school in Chicago at the time, and we had a habit on Friday, all the guys that lived out in the suburbs where we lived, waiting for the train, we would just go to the bar, and it was Friday, we'd just get ourselves uh, feeling much better for the weekend. And then, I, then one day God saved me, and I realized that was not good. Number one, I repented of those sins in my life, and number two, I realized those friends that I had, they were, not, they, they were there basically to support me in disobedience to God. And so I went to him and I said, you know, I have a dilemma. I says, you know, I love you guys as friends and I trust you. But I don't mind drinking Cokes and hanging out a little bit with you once in a while. But I can't hang out in the bar with you anymore. And you know what? They all left. They all, they, the friendships all just dissolved instantly except for one guy. And then I realized that guy was my real friend. And the reason why he's my friend is because he didn't care about whether we drank together or didn't drink together. What, what he cared about is the relationship. The other guys, the only thing we had in common was the bottle. And once the bottle was removed, there was no friendship, and they fell away. And so I think it's important to realize that, you know, whether you're struggling with drugs, whether you're dealing with some form of sexual addiction or or other sins in your life, if there's those around you who are dragging you down, you need to break those relationships. And you young people that are here who have friends, maybe you're going off to college or or maybe you're in high school, and, and, and you know that these friendships have a way of bringing you down in the area of sin. Those are relationships that really do need to be broken and removed from. Pray for those people. I mean, you, 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 know, you don't want to be self-righteous about it, but pray for them. Number three, beat your body into submission. That's 1 Corinthians 9.27. Paul says, I discipline my body. I, I bring it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And there he's, he's given the illustration of a boxer. And how he's actually beating his body into subjection. Now, how he did that and what he did, I have no idea. I mean, and what that means to you and what that means to me, I don't know. All I know, this sounds pretty aggressive. This is a hardcore training program. This is really a hardcore exercise. Uh, getting yourself into shape spiritually so that you will not sin. I mean, there's times where you just have to take the body and... What did Jesus say your hand offend you, do what? Cut it off. Your eye offend you, pluck it out. That's, that's beating your body into submission. First uh, Timothy 4.8 says, Bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness profiteth unto all things. So exercise yourself unto godliness. Some of the ways this might work its way out is like in Job 31.1 where we see, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? I'm going to beat my body into submission. Oh, I've got eyes. And I'm looking around. And I'm looking at things that I know God doesn't want me to look at that causes me to, to tempts my heart to sin. So you make a covenant with your eyes. Say, I'm going to beat this body into submission. I'm not going to look that way. I'm not going to look that way. I'm going to close my eyes. I'm not going where my, where my eyes should wander. I had a good friend, he was saved when he was about 22 years old, and he grew up on the beach. And you know what he did? He made a covenant with himself. He said, I can't go back to the beach anymore in California. He says, this is, my eyes are everywhere, and it's causing me to lust. It's causing me to sin. And he, uh, he, what was he doing? He was beating his body into subjection. Proverbs chapter 5. It might beat your body to walk a certain path to, to avoid temptation. 
Five in Proverbs is an interesting one because do you remember the gal that's on the corner and she's there and she's kind of making herself known to all the guys that come by? And, and so, you, you know, she's a temptress. Now, you can either make a decision as a young man, am I going to walk by? You know, I'm just going on a walk. I'll walk by the temptress's house. Or do I discipline my body in such a way I'm not going to walk that way? I'm going to walk in righteousness. I'm going to walk in holiness. I'm going to go around the block and get around her house. Number four, deal with first motions of sin within. When sin first raises its head, usually by way of a thought in your life, take out the machete and whop it off. Cut it off. Nip it in the bud. Deal with it in the level of your mind because when your mind turns to action and then it turns to sin, and then if you don't deal with the sin actions, it turns to your character and it becomes who you ultimately are. So deal with it. Uh, nip it in the bud, the first motions of sin. Again, I like what John Owen says. He says, sin is like weeds growing in a garden. Unattended, they will take over and choke out the beautiful flowers and fruit. But a good gardener always pulls out the weeds, even while cultivating the good soil. The Spirit plants and produces fruit in our hearts. And He also gives us power to pull out the invasive weeds, attacking the garden of our hearts and our lives. We are invited to participate in this work of the Spirit. We cooperate, we participate in the act of removing the, the sin, or dealing with the sin while it's still small. That's a big one, really. Think about that in your own life. You know, when that first thought, that first temptation comes, deal with it. That's part of the mortification process. Number five, avail yourself of all the ordinary means of grace. Remember, this isn't a work of the flesh. This isn't a work of you doing something and earning something in God's eyes. This is the Holy Spirit who's in you. He's giving you the desire, the will, and the power to do what you're doing. So you need to basically avail yourself of all the means of grace that God's grace might abound in your life. And what are those? Well, the ordinary means of grace might include prayer, being a person who's on your knees and crying out to God for holiness, asking God regularly to forgive you of your sins. Uh, the ordinary means of grace that God's given us is the Word of God. And the Word of God becomes the means as we understand His will for our lives and we see all the blessings that Christ has done on our behalf. The means of grace are worship. What we're doing right now, here it is, the Lord's Day, July 3rd, worshiping, worshiping our Savior. Uh, the means of grace would include the, the, the very... Lord's Supper that we come to, the, the means of breaking bread, evaluating our lives, analyzing our hearts, uh, confessing sins. And let's not forget the fellowship of the saints. We're here to do what? To love one another, encourage one another to love and good works. And so this is what happens dynamically in the body of Christ when we come together as we, we stimulate one another to greater love and to greater good works. And hopefully within the body. So if you're out by yourself and you're in the corner somewhere and you're not reading the Word and you're not praying, you're not fellowshipping with God's people, you're not breaking the bread with God's people, you're, you're not worshiping God on, on, on the Lord's day, then I, I can tell you right now, you're struggling. You're struggling with sin and, 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 and the whole battle of sin. You've lost it even before you started because you're not availing yourself of the ordinary means of grace. And then lastly, I just want to just say this, that uh, I've looked at the negative, the putting off, but also there's a positive side of this, the putting on. I want to look at that during the Lord's Supper in more detail, but, you know, there's a negative task. We've got to kill sin. That's negative. We've got to kill sin, break friendships, all the things we talked about. But if you remove all those things and don't replace them with the grace and the righteousness of Christ, then you're going to fall right back into sin again. Uh, R.C. Sproul calls this the glorious exchange. That's the principle where, yes, you're, you're, you're doing away with sin. 
you're, 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 you're confessing sin and, and you're pushing it aside and you're, and, and, and you're having some victory. But you're not replacing it with the righteousness of Christ and a growing righteousness of Christ. As sinful desires and habits are not only rejected, they need to be exchanged for Christ-like graces, Christ-like actions. As we are clothed in Christ's character and His graces, we're held together by His love, he writes, not only in our private life, but in the church life as well. So here we are with Owen's words again. Set faith at work on Christ for the killing of your sin. Remember His blood. Remember His righteousness that was given to you, to your account. Remember His sovereignty before the foundations of the world and in naming a people, even like you, to be saved. I mean, this just should stir your hearts. This should motivate you to want to kill sin. Think of all that Christ has done on the cross for the forgiveness of sin, that sin might be defeated once and for all in your life. And how can you go back? Oh, your passion should be for holiness, to be like your Savior. And, uh, yea, Owens writes, Thou wilt, through the good providence of God, live to see thy lust dead at your feet on that day. So, brethren, let's kill sin and live by the grace of God. Father in heaven, we close thanking you for speaking to us uh, in very blunt terms this morning. Lord, uh, we don't want to be passive people that uh, are basking in biblical doctrine at the expense of living out those truths in our life. Lord, we pray that you would give us uh, a holy desire, as it says in Philippians 2, to live a holy life. A holy desire, Father, to fight sin, to fight the good fight. And then we also pray you give us the power and the strength, as well as the passion, to do that. And Lord, that as we emulate more and more like Christ, Christ-likeness, Lord, you would receive more and more of the glory, and we would receive more and more of the joy. In Christ's name, amen.